we completely swept past the two records you released after you had broken through. And you had mentioned that, that you weren't writing at all on those records, which threw me because you tend to assume that the singer is like the driving force creatively. Did you retreat in some way? Was there already tension or were you just overwhelmed? Like what was the reason that you weren't contributing as much in those two? Fatigue played a big part in it. In 2004, I tried to kind of break the band up because we had been on the road so long. I remember seven days at home was all we had that was considered vacation the whole year, the rest of it, we had like junkets and studio trips and all kinds of stuff like that. Because, you know, we were a major label band at that point. It was our first major label record. So we really just let them tell us what to do. You know, we didn't say no. We didn't feel like we had the power to say no. All of that year, I didn't have a home. I didn't have an apartment. I didn't have anywhere that I had to pay for. And when I finally settled down at the end of 2004, because I got married in the summer of 2004, I think the day before Curiosis started. <laughs> so it was like a pretty eventful summer for me. A lot of the people who are going to listen to this don't even remember Curiosa because that was 11 years ago. Relative to how quickly things move in the Cures world, um, Curiosa came together really fast. So It, <laughs> it was such an insane thing because where we were slotted, actually, there were two stages. And we were playing after Interpol and before The Cure. You know, even at the time, Interpol was huge. It was after their first record. It, it was when Antics was about to come out. Yeah, they were the coolest fucking band in the world, in my mind. Um, although we did have this contest when we were super wasted to see who could get fries into the holster that Carlos wore. <laughs> like, if we could get French fries in the gun holster, it would look like Roy Rogers. I talk about you guys as a launching point for third wave emo, right? And it, it could be said that you really didn't grow a lot. And I would say that that Envy split was like a bright light during this kind of these three albums that were, you know, I, I mean, you worked your asses off, but while you're, you know, slowly in, in, in a difficult way going through these, these albums and this major label pressure and all this stuff, you know, My Chemical Romance just explodes and it's like, holy shit, it just changed overnight. Yeah. And it was so strange for me because those guys, you know, like I produced their first record and I thought like, they're my little bros or whatever. And then it's like, you know, they're the biggest band in the world. People like we're even getting, you know, a minor amount of fans from the association. And it's like, wow, that's, uh, wait, what about like our wave that we were on? Was sort of like the feeling a little bit. I, I remember there's a line on that record that was like, like a bullet through a flock of doves. And I remember thinking like, yeah, this record is like a like it's like a bullet through the heart of Thursday. Like it's like gonna make us scatter and like a new thing come in. And it, it sort of also spoke to the excitement around them and stuff like you know what I mean. Like there was just something when I heard that line, I was like, oh boy. <laughs> I was like, all right. I kind of lived through this second wave emo thing, which was very early '90s through the late '90s. But second wave emo had no money behind it. It was Crank Records. It was Caulfield. It was, you know, fucking Gern Blanstern out here. These were guys in their fucking bedrooms living in triple-decker houses, 
There was never even a whiff of money until the very, very late 90s. And I remember it very clearly. Electra hired an A&R guy, and they signed Archer's a Loaf, and they put out Stereo Lab, and they signed fucking Tuscadero. And I did a, I did a video that's not been translated to a podcast because the audio quality was so fucked up. I interviewed Shauna Carmody from Swirlies. The reason I mention this is that when I was interviewing Shauna, she was like, we got signed to V2, you know, Virgin's fake indie label, and they gave them like 25 grand to record an album. And it's like, wait, we have a budget? It was so brand new, just a few years before you got signed. And then all of a sudden, it was this huge deal. You know, you did, you were more commercial. You were more like just tight as shit and you could sing. And it was like none of the uncomfortable insanity of Sunny Day or, or Jeremy's solo record. You had this moment and then all of a sudden it was fucking manic panic, sharper image, hot topic fucking mall emo it was weird to me because it was like the recommended if you like the thursday would get thrown into it was all these bands and i'd just be like wait who would like us in like those bands like you know what i mean i just think like this is who we're being marketed to and like who in their right mind likes what we're doing which is clearly of another different era and this manic panic like you said em mall emo you know what i mean we just we weren't it. And I feel like Taking Back Sunday even could skirt that line just a little bit more. But we kind of couldn't. And I think we tried to at times because we wanted, you know, clearly we wanted an audience. You know what I mean? Like we we, we wanted to have people like the band and to make a living doing it. Like I, I'd be lying if I said, you know, we're total purists. It all of a sudden became totally 4-4, mid-tempo. It sounded like 38 Special. It was so fast, and, and you guys got totally swept away by it. Yeah, that was. I'm not gonna lie, that was tough. Like, we're all the time. We weren't affected by that. We were affected by, like, our own inner bullshit. But definitely City by the Light Divided, the reason why it's weirder and it's, like, Dave Fridman produced, it's totally reactionary. And I think that's why, even though there was, like, growth, it sounds forced or something, it's like we were trying to break away from someone rather than follow our own, like, muse. That's kind of, like, poisoning the well a little bit, you know? Yeah, with City, it's like you can feel Island is on it. You know, Dave's there, but I know you had a great experience with him. Well, it was an interesting thing when we started working with Dave because it was like... We know we want to we want to try something new. You know, we're meeting with all these producers. We we sat down with the big guy Rick Rubin at his house in the hills in Hollywood. Let's hear it. <laughs> the weekend Let's hear Coachella. It. Yeah, of course it is. It's always a good story, right? He has this great waiting room to see him, which is stained glass windows and church pews, <laughs> which I love. Like if you're gonna wait anywhere to meet somebody, you have them meet in like a chapel. And he's got these uh, two dogs that have like it's the first time I ever saw those dogs with the dreadlocks to the floor. He starts asking us about like what do we want to accomplish you know and i start giving him all these like heady answers and actually he said like how do you want your album new album to be different than your old album and i said that i wanted it to be more true and less real and he was like that's the most amazing answer to this question i've ever heard like he was so happy you know he still didn't work with us but he was so happy that i said that and you know he was like asking what our touchstone was like our main touchstone and we we're like fugazi right fugazi is like the great unifier and he's like ah yes ian is here and he like made this like <laughs> in my heart gesture and i was like oh no way <laughs> i was like right yeah ian's ian's in all of us and he's like no no he's here he's in the house he's upstairs 
Jeff, you are giving me way too much good shit. You have got to stop giving me these fucking stories. This is profitable material, man. <laughs> so yeah, okay. So Ian was actually upstairs. Yeah, he was upstairs because uh, um, his other band had just played... Uh, the Evens? Yeah, the Evens. They were playing Coachella. That's why he was at his house. So we met with all these people and just none of them were right. And then we met with Dave and he was just like so great, you know, just on a personal level, he was so great. And I was like, Dave, you know, the only thing that I'm worried about is like your records sound insane. <laughs> You know, like, I just heard The Woods for the first time. It had just been made. And I was like, dude, you made Sleazer Kinney sound, like, amazing at times. And also, like, they can't play at all at times. And he was like, yeah, isn't it great? So a lot of, like, those first two records were me fighting with Dave. And he'd be like, well, if you want your voice turned up, you got to sing a hook. No, that's, like, not what we do, you know? Like, I kind of, like, yell some crazy shit about, like, my feelings, and then they play, like, super great stuff, and you taught, like, we just had a total disconnect on the first record, and then, like, the rest of my guys trying to, you know, kind of convince me to go back on Uncommon Existence, even though I was, like, we had made that split back at our first studio, and I was, like, super happy with the split. Like, I was like, no, no, like, the Envy split is amazing, let's go back to what works, like, we can make another full collapse, like, it'll be amazing, and that's what I was, like, trying to get them to write, was, like, something intense, and very misguided in a lot of ways what I was trying to do with Common Existence. Just even looking at the fucking song titles on Common Existence, Unintended Long-Term Effects, You Were the Cancer, Last Call. I mean, it's like... Pretty doom and gloom. Yeah, and it, and you also... Well, and then the bonus, the, the deluxe edition came out with Fake Nostalgia. Which, I love Fake Nostalgia. The end of Fake Nostalgia is like one of the best things we do. <laughs> the end of that song. Well, and there was a lot of that going on because, you know, when you were writing it, you're still in 2007, 2008 and stuff. And that's like, there was all these fucking bloggers and people like me who were just talking shit and pretending like they had fucking been around forever and their shit didn't stink and they knew everything about music and they didn't know shit. There was definitely a lot of, a lot of people that were full of shit around back then. I mean, we definitely would get like critiqued about not being authentically this certain way, whether I was or not. It's like, I actually lived through that kind of stuff. Like the basement call, like that was my life. That's what I did for better or for worse, it doesn't really fucking matter at all. But that's what I did. So when somebody's comparing me to that standard and saying like, you're not the real deal, I saw the real deal. And they're like, clearly didn't see the real deal, clearly had nothing to do with it and maybe read about it somewhere. I shouldn't have read criticism at that point in my life, probably. The internet made it way too easy for these labels and these people to get talked about when you're coming out of the same experience I had and people think you didn't, but you did, which is local scene, no Mm. internet. If you got a reputation in any way nationally that allowed you to book shows and do a real tour. Yeah. That was fucking hard to do. Yeah, you fucking worked for that back then. I, I mean, my, I can say that for sure. <laughs> I'm trying, you know, my best friends were in pretty big regional bands. Uh. And like the biggest moment of their life was getting like half of a braid tour as an opener. <laughs> right. 
we were stoked for them, you know? Like, this is like 96, 97. We thought it was crazy when the money came in at that level, at that little level where we were paying like $2,000 for Archer's Loaf. But by the time you're there, as you said earlier, you're talking hundreds of thousands and then relatively shortly after that, millions of dollars. The thing that drives me crazy is people don't understand the pressure that you dealt with. They don't. Because MCR was begging for that. Like, they were, that's the track they wanted to go on. They believed that that was available to them. That's the funny thing. That's what nobody realizes is that we didn't believe that that was a possibility. We just thought, yeah, man, you go and do this for a year and then you go back to work and you see, you know, maybe you get to do half a braid tour. It's like, just like you said, you know, we were kind of looking for that. And then, you know, we did get, we got our, you know, we got our half a Boy Sets Fire tour. We got our, our three quarters of a Murder City Devils tour. And we were like, man, life's pretty good. And then... And then while we were on tour with Saves the Day, it was just like this explosive surprise of becoming a huge band and, and there actually being money. And then that's the difference is that after that, there was a path to take from basement to multimillionaire. There really was. There were so many people out there that had been in the scene that were still there. Right. And all of a sudden, just knowing someone, yep. you know, oh, I know Kevin, the booker at Middle East. Yeah, right. You're all set. Dude, honestly, you know? I saw a lot of that around then was the, like the second talent buyer at a club in Worcester becoming like one of the biggest booking agents in the world. Stuff like that. Like crazy shit like that. When the, when this first happened, Screamo, Indie, Hardcore, whatever, when, when these bands started getting big, it was because of the bookers and they got connected to the labels and then it was no, like... that's very true. It was very different from when the record labels very soon got in control of it. And Island, I think Island absolutely failed to become one of those labels, not anything to do with you guys. Yeah, well, they had us in Thrice, and neither of us became the big money acts. I mean, Taking Back Sunday and My Chem were the ones that ended up doing it. And Fall Out, somehow Fallout Boy was associated with that in, in the time, even though clearly they're a very, even very different type of thing themselves. I don't, dude, I, for the life of me, I can't figure out. I mean, I, I certainly can't figure out how Fallout Boy are still on the radio, and my nine-year-old daughter is listening to them. But like when they came out, I was like, oh, well, Phoenix TX is good. Like what? <laughs> I thought they sounded it like was, Farside. Do you remember Farside? Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, but well, th that's flattering them, dude. To be <laughs> well, I mean, I was you know a pretty nice guy. But I didn't know what. <laughs> what I, all right. So what I mean by that is not that they were terrible, but like they were so so obviously like just two years ago watching Jackass and Blink on MTV. And now they're, they've got this huge forum. It's all set for them. It's just ready to go. And it became a plug and play type thing where it was like, you can kind of do this. Here's your shot. There were a lot of, of fans, probably even of our fans, you know, because we had this huge reach, even though maybe we were a little weird for it. But then they wanted like big choruses and stuff at MCR. And, and those people were willing to give them. At first, everybody had to like watch us because we were like sort of at the edge of it doing it first. And people were like, whoa, cool. I want to be like that. Then after a while, I was like, well, yeah, I want to be into that, but like listen to something that sounds like everything else on the radio. And that sort of like bred the opportunity for bands to just be like, my path to my kid's college education is this guitar and this super simple, you know, song. I got it. This is going to be great. You know, so obviously as Thursday was having its differences, you you were sort of already around 
talking to to Daryl, you know, and and Ben, and and how how did United Nations come about? Because it it was kind of brewing for a long time, right? Yeah, Daryl and I had the idea a long time ago. I mean, two thousand four probably or two thousand five. We would like write each other about it, and it would all just be like. The Usurp Synapse 7-inch. No, Jerome's dream. Like, it has to be Portraits of Past. And I was like, there's no way we can play Portraits of Past type stuff. So, like, it can't be Portraits of Past. The cool thing to me is that you guys were doing this while you were on majors. You know, you, you you wore like the Reagan masks and then like you just had all these really fucking cool like old school misfits punk style iconography, you know, dares. Really like record geek ideas that you couldn't work out in your other bands. Well, that's you had to what do it, it is. That's exactly what it is, man. Like I would have these crazy bold ideas for Thursday and they'd be like, ah, yeah and i'd be so deflated and at some point i was like no fucking way i'm gonna do this shit so like a lot of what the first united nations record was was what i imagined city by the light divided to be i was like guys oh my god you know what we should do we should (laughs) this is so crazy because this is like before radiohead and stuff i was like we should make the heaviest record of our career and give it away for free while we're on a major label like not even tell the label i was like how fucking punk would that be This is where you kept in touch with temporary residents and you were getting this stuff out of yourself. Yeah, yeah no, it was, it's great. And Jeremy has had such an amazing punk attitude about this stuff. The bigger the record geek idea, like, let's do it. How many should we issue? Should we just make it limited until we get sued? Or like, what's like the issue number? Because after we first got sued by the United Nations, which we really did, that wasn't a joke. We just stopped for a while Wait, and thought... How did you get? how did you get served by the United Nations? They sent it to our publicist because we didn't put our name... This is the thing. We knew we could get in trouble. So we never put any names and we never copyrighted our songs. We also had this like kind of lofty copyright lift idea of like, fuck it. If anybody wants to take or cover or use these songs, which are this abrasive, like let them. It was pretty wild to put out this record and then get all these cease and desist notices, which even had unitedfuckingnations.com in them on real United Nations letterhead. They had to write out that stupid website name. Um <laughs> It was just so great and so punk. And like when people asked us what we were changing our name to, I was like, are you kidding? We're not going to change our name. Like you can't have a punk band and change your name when the United Nations tells you to. Like, and people like when we played our first show, they're like, what if somebody shows up and arrests you? I was like, oh my God, I could only hope for those kind of headlines. You know what I mean? It's like, that's just, this stuff is awesome. It's like what I dreamed of doing. You know what, man? Honestly, I'd say you did it in a way better way because like, 
all the jokes about punk were always joke songs. They were like Weird Al songs, like Ska Sucks and Blow Me Jaw and all the the stuff you were doing with like the way you did the logo, the United Nations logo and, and, and all these things. They were explicit copyright gambits like Negative Land had done. Well, that's the thing. We were going for that. Like to me, my favorite send up artists, like and the people who worked on the first United Nations record is the KLF. I love the KLF. That was like one of those. You're going to fucking freak out a lot of your fans, dude. You know, when they find out what that is. You'd read about them lighting a million pounds on fire. Yeah, I love it. I love all that it, shit. It's fucking insane. Noise Terror got on stage with them and yeah, had the guns, machine guns. That was fucked up. That was. No, that was that was so fucked up that like the cure were like, I have to go. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, like, <laughs> imagine the discussion that would bring now about privilege and them not getting killed on stage for doing that. It would be, it would be wild. You have so many muscles you never got to flex in your band. The, the tens of thousands of kids that follow you on Twitter and, and know all about you and, and this, they're just, it's like they're thinking back to My Chemical Romance and stuff that happened when they were 13. And, oh, Jeff, you know, was so, he was so poetic. I cry every time I think about him. And you're like, yeah, but I had like 15 years of fucking intense shit that I was thinking about and doing when I was a kid. And like, that's all gone. Yeah, that's the thing that people don't don't think about a lot you know like i had a you know i had a, a couple traumatic years right before thursday started and um and like a lot of those demons were exercised by the time city was done and i think that's the reason that like common existence is also so beaten down is that like i was looking for some trauma that maybe wasn't necessarily left at the moment like i was like looking for something and so i was like bloodletting in a way that was like why are you even doing this like you're writing seven hours a day to take out some kind of pain that maybe it's a funny thing when you get known for being this like honest sad person it's like i'm not that sad actually anymore collect seemed like it was a reboot you know of eyeball like just i don't know in a way like you wanted to start over is that accurate when collect first started it was like a bedroom proposition as well it was like eyeball thing you know it, was, it got huge and it was you know kind of ha had its own life without me and so i was like i want to do something small again where i can just do whatever i want but the first record i put out was the touche amore record and that was you know they became a huge band in the hardcore uh community and it was like uh, it got bigger than i intended it to at first and then it got bigger than you intended but twitter and everything is already there so how did you think it could stay a bedroom thing? You're already famous, dude. I wasn't rich, though. I was just like a guy working at a kitchen store and putting out records in his spare time. And, um, you know, and then I had like a, a band right after that that was members of like TV on the radio and uh, Trail of Dead. And that like I'm losing all the money I made from Touche Amore on. If I put out one record a year, that was kind of it. And then when Martin came along and was like, so when, when did Martin Shkreli become like your silent partner? Like, how, you know, there's this famous story that he bought your guitar for 10 grand. Yeah, it was great. It was great. I needed that money. man. Well, and it's funny, like, you know, when we talk about this stuff, $10,000 is nothing for somebody in Martin Shkreli's position. So I have a totally different opinion of this guy. Like nothing about him seems like shady or sketchy or whatever like i kind of in a way that most music fans don't mm -hmm. i know what he is right i think he, that's he's probably a, true he, he's like a really common type okay. um like it, it used to be that it would be analysts that were like him that were young that would become rock stars and they would get on cnbc and like all the idiots 
that were day trading fucking morons who knew nothing about how markets worked and didn't have institutional money behind them, mm. they'd be like, oh, yeah, and they'd follow their recommendations, and they didn't realize that they were all chasing each other up, and then the, instit the institutionals were going to cut their fucking nuts off. Um, and so he's that kind of person, mm. um, and the bottom hasn't kind of fallen out for him yet because the media is keeping him alive because it helps sell papers. But it, it's so crazy to me that anyone... You know, if they didn't understand how a person like him gets to where they are and how it works, mm. would come at you and be like, oh, dude, I don't know. Co Collect is totally backed by this shady hedge fund guy. <laughs> like, they even know what a hedge fund is. Like, right. that is the cheapest fucking shot I think I've ever seen anyone take. And I, D Jeff, I've taken lots of cheap <laughs> shots, bro. Um, and so for me, I was like really incensed yeah. that you were getting this incredibly just misinformed just mudslinging thrown your way and um that's pretty tough. so what i want yeah. yeah and it was crazy because also like before i even ever talked to you i had reached out to heather fortune just as a twitter person mm -hmm. she was somebody who was really tolerant of like my antagonizing <laughs> of other writers and stuff <laughs> you've done other records as collect mm -hmm. but it really did seem like wax idols was the realization of everything you were trying to do with this, like the band, yeah. the person you were trying to find and say, and so together, this is what I like that I wish was going on right now. And I just want to make that happen. Yeah, no, that's very true. You know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff that um, ended up like kind of contributing to the collect thing, but it was like so overwhelmingly sort of like, you know, sort of gothic kind of new sounding, but with like a really nice production edge to it like there was like these common threads through all the records even our hip-hop records like cities of eve it started it started becoming this collect thing and it was you know it was really clear to people close to me that it's just what i like you know this really kind of dark sort of gothy thing that's like one foot in the, in the past but another foot that's actually very new and forward thinking and i think the wax idols record was very clearly when i heard it it was like man this is it like i was like this is the one controversy happened right before that record was supposed to come out it was we you know we already had it in the pipeline it, you know i just thought oh fuck we're gonna fuck heather's record up like i was so so that was like my record came out the week of the controversy and i still wasn't like i was like okay this really sucks this really hurts but when i realized that we were gonna like maybe tank heather's record that's when i got like just completely downtrodden and depressed because yeah, like you said, it was this realization of everything that I wanted to do with Collect. And, you know, also like empowering someone like Heather. You know what I mean? That's that's like a huge goal of mine is to make artists feel like they have the power to do it and it's theirs and it's not being taken away. It's not being completely co-opted. Like they still own it. 
I was very good about making all the contracts completely in the artist's favor. You know, I mean, the thing is, like, with all the mudslinging that went on, people don't realize I was giving bands what they never have. I was giving 50-50 contracts with, like, unrecoupable advances. I was, like, buying bands, their vans outright, and saying you never have to pay this back. Because I had a dude with money backing me up, and I was like, what am I going to do with this? I'm going to give bands money. I'm just going to give them money, you know? <laughs> you have the statement from Sick Feeling, Jeff's awesome, but this is terrible, when they don't even know what the fuck they're talking about. And then you have Don Palermo, who's like, uh, totally throwing shade at you. Like, what the fuck? It's tough. That's tough. That's that's fucking crap. Like these people have no fucking clue. A, how little money you were actually given by this guy relative to the pools of money that he swims in. Right, yeah. I mean, I like, tried to be this... conscientious with that money. That's maybe that's the joke on me is that like I tried to stretch every dollar. I like edited every video myself. You know what I mean? That was the kind of stuff I was doing. Like don't, oh don't want to spend God. too much money. I'd rather not sleep this week and I'll edit so and so's video. Like, what's the sum total that he gave you? Oh, 700,000, 600, 700,000, something like that. Okay. So that's like after tax one year's bonus for a mediocre trader. Right. Can, can like, I just want kids to understand $700,000 for someone in his position is a fart in a stiff wind. <laughs> it's nothing. Well, he had planned on, you know, I mean, quite honestly, like he just planned on giving a whole lot more than that. And, but this is yeah. a vanity, like yeah, yeah, it was a vanity not, thing. It, he was never going to make money off collect. Anybody who thought I was like putting money back in his pocket—that's fucking, that's craziness. But the thing that makes me crazy is it's still not even that much of a commitment. Like this is something that was like it's like buying an old skateboard deck that you had when you were a kid. <laughs> yeah, he would never in a million years give a flying fuck about what happened with seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars. The swings yeah. in his life—that's a daily swing. You know, honestly, in I his think if anything, he was a little hurt that, like, I think it, I think he was a little saddened that, like, I got hurt in the whole mess. You know, that because he didn't because he, he didn't give a shit. You know, for him, this is every press is good press. He's like, he's still in the headlines. He's still killing it. Whatever, you know, like he doesn't care about the collect stuff except that, like, you know, here I am just getting completely battered and like taken out for something that I had nothing to do with. Right. And, but, but the thing is, that's a totally emotional response. Like right. this is no exposure for him financially. It's yeah, nothing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's not the idea that like, because he legitimately was impacted by your band and loved your band and had talked to you and was like, Oh fuck. I'd love to like, I just, Jeff, I fucking, I love you. You're, I'm a huge fan. You have all these bands that you like, and you know, these people, like you just want to make something happen. I'm going to make that happen because I can. Yep. That's what it was. What yeah. the fuck? That's all it was. How is yeah. How is that not better than, oh, well, I work at fucking We Get Press and I've sold you Coke and fucking so you're going to put my band on Best New Music. <laughs> the stuff that's happening in the actual music sphere is so much more corrupted. Well, I'll tell you what, man. I, I've always seen like, you know, somebody say like, you guys weren't a DIY label. So-and-so is a DIY label. And I thought like, we're not a DIY label. I never said we were a DIY label. DIY labels steal from the bands on the label. And then we started this out talking about how when the major labels came in in the late 90s, DIY has not meant shit since, <laughs> let's say, what, 2004. Yeah. The, the relationships are all there and they're all backed by money that comes from advertisers it's it's PR companies. It's all this fucking crap. It's advertising Verticals, agencies. Man. Yeah. And what, what I'm trying to say and what I ultimately want to leave this with is the interaction that you had with Martin Shkreli is actually 
one of the purest things that has happened in music in the last 10 years and nobody fucking gets it yeah well you know i'll tell you what mic that drop. is, that mic is drop. a very hard thing to sell most people chris why is that hard i'm selling it i'm gonna tell them straight up this guy had nothing to do with it he never even talked to you he doesn't know shit he could give a fuck about music he just likes you and what you represent and he gave you an amount of money that on a relative basis is dick <laughs> <laughs> what's the what is the fucking problem with that yeah, people well i think there's a few problems i think people in america don't like to see how the sausage is made one with anything yeah. concerning money and two there's like punk rock guilt like we should no we shouldn't have any money like we shouldn't have nice things like it's not yeah. okay why don't why don't all these fucking uh gateway you know websites publish how much they get from inbev every year you know like <laughs> dude uh, oh yeah by the way miller coors yeah we just paid pitchfork like fucking 250 grand you know pff, no problem we just you know sell alcohol it's all good well it is interesting like i i was watching a lot of the sites reporting on us and just thinking like you should have to include who pays your bills. If you're going to talk about yeah. who pays my bills, you yep. should have to put like disclaimer. This this whole piece has been brought to you by. By the way, three full years of Pitchfork were funded by American Apparel, whose fucking founder beat off in front of girls. Uh, but that's all good. <laughs> oh, my God. Jeff, you're not responsible for listening <laughs> to the things I said. I love you. Uh, I love everything you've done. We're going to bed. All right, man. Thanks for having me. All right, me. man. night.